You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week it's awards season. Grammy nominations are in, and so are the International Opera Award winners. Find out who's cashing in on that OBS bump this year. Plus, Matt and Ashley play Monday evening quarterback from coast to coast to, well, third coast. And then Friends of the Show Boston Early Music Festival are set to present The Dragon of Wantley as their Thanksgiving weekend chamber opera. We've got their star tenor Aaron Sheehan, who takes a free throw on what it's like to be in one of Bemf's lavish, historically informed productions. Plus, in the two-minute drill, the Met plans to celebrate Stephen Schwartz? Could a staging of Wicked starring Lisa Davidson and Nina Stemma be far away? Make sure you subscribe on our podcast to find out. <laughs> on Spotify, you can click follow. On Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Or you can record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you do it, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pen, and an all-new number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. And that's a pretty good deal to me. I don't know about you, Oliver, but I, I want to take advantage of that. You know, what's a really bad deal right now is the way Carlos Alcarez is playing. I don't know what happened to this beautiful boy after the uh, after Wimbledon. Like he just has not recaptured his form and he's been eliminated or beaten by people who he was easily beating earlier this year. We are in the final big tournament of the year right now, the uh, ATP uh, finals. They just choose eight of the top players to all battle it out like uh, Royal Rumble style. And he already lost in his first match. And um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I want to give him a hug. I want to like shampoo his hair for him, you know? Is he Wimble done, Matt Cummings? <laughs> I mean, sources may differ on whether or not he's having a better week than a... Uh... Jason Kelsey, who was greeted at the Wiener Circle in Chicago this week as Taylor's boyfriend's brother. <laughs> <laughs> who is Jason Kelsey? The other Taylor's Kelsey boyfriend's brother. brother. Uh, okay, but, yeah, but is he, he, an play, he plays Oliver. for the Eagles. Oh, we need a football person here. But is I'm he pretty also, sure that's right. Is he also hot? Can I uh, put my name in the hat for him? I mean, I room? mean, he's he's in the area, so you know, go for it. Ooh. I do not. I'm not applying to be Jason Kelsey's. Um, but boy, our listeners were dying to know about your tush push antics. <laughs> Please, for the love of God, let's talk some opera. Chalk talk on opera box score. So it's a great week for uh, opera companies and recordings to be recognized. We got the International Opera Awards, the and we have Grammy nominations. <laughs> uh, let's start with the International Opera Awards, and we'll go category by category. Uh, Opera Company of the Year. Uh, the contenders were the Vienna Folk Opera, uh, Teatro mm. dell'Opera di Roma, uh, Geneva's Grand Theatre, uh, the Opera Comique in Paris, Bayerische Staatsoper, and the one American entry, San Francisco. And uh, I think, you know, the suspense is over. Uh, Bayerische Staatsoper. Wins. They cannot get enough Bayerische Staatsoper. They really can't at those Opie Awards. Yeah, <laughs> they're the Hymans. 
it, it's really interesting to me how uh, how regularly it's always the Bayerische Staatsoper. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're a great company. I think they have a lot of variety that, you know, no American company can compete with. Um, of course, they've got great singers. They've got, you know, the more cutting edge productions on a regular basis. They have yeah, all that government funding and the year round yeah. season. Well, really. Yeah. And they also have like a pretty decent like international reach thanks to a lot of like, you know, uh, live broadcasts and recordings. They just kind of drop, you know, on the Internet sometimes. It makes you wonder uh, how uh, folks up Wien and Geneva even were contenders. Like what? Did yeah. They do or or like, San Fran. Honestly, yeah, matter, yeah. like no hate to any of those companies. But uh, I, I feel like, you know, they, they this is I, I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but like I think that Bayerische Staatsoper has won, I think, almost every single year. I, since I really I, do think that they've won almost every year. I think so. Um, let us know, opera, yeah. mailbag at operaboxcore.com if we're wrong about that. Let's move yeah. on to Conductor of the Year now. Um, pretty decent, you know, uh, list of nominees here. We have a friend of the show, Carrie Lynn Wilson, uh, Natalie Stutzmann. Uh, uh, we have Susan Melke. Uh, Mark Melke, yeah. Yeah, uh, Mark Minkowski, uh, Francois Xavier Roth, but of course it went to Antonio Papano. Uh, yeah, I think is... this is them trying to make up for not nominating Royal Opera House London uh, <laughs> as one of the opera companies of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, over here in the States, I don't know what Antonio Papano has done for opera, except record that new Turandot with Jonas Kaufman and Sandra Radvanovsky. Yeah. Yeah, um, one very, of those people sounds very good. Yeah, I'm very aware <laughs> of the activity of Natalie Stutzmann, thanks to her work in the U.S., and Carolyn Wilson, who is a friend of the show. And I love what Francois Xavier Roth is doing. I don't know what he's doing in opera, but I know what he's doing just generally. I have a feeling that for Papano, this is just a recognition of his impending retirement from Royal Opera House, and that's kind mm. of like a career valedictory sort of award. Okay. Yeah. Moving on to uh, the female singer category, uh, Corinne Winters, Golda Schultz, Ermanella Yajo, Alina Garancha, Eleonora Burato, and the winner, Aigul Akhmetshina. Um, Matt, you were saying that she's very young. That's She's very young. She was, uh, I think she's like 27, and she got a lot of buzz wow. this summer when she went on as Carmen. Uh, yeah, she... she's on that new recording with Freddie DiTomaso of his aria recital as Carmen, so... Yeah, I, I I don't know too much about her. It's exciting yeah. that she's won something so big. You know, she's even yeah. younger than the baby of the show, me. Not which sure is, how big they're the getting in on the ground are, floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're on the Akmachina train. Next stop, <laughs> the Grammys. <laughs> Male singer contenders were Luca Salsi, Michael Spires, Michael Vola. So two Michaels, uh, Mika Karas. That's pretty much a Michael. Uh, our friend of the show, Ryan Speedo Green, and Tomasz Konieczny. And the winner was Michael Spires. Yay! Because he doesn't, yeah. he's, does, he defies all categories. He could be female singer as well. So he <laughs> sings, he sings in every Fox. Crazy so. range. And he's had yeah. a really good year too. Some uh, good recordings coming out. Um, best we got to get him on the show. I hear he's, he's really, uh, keen on talking. So we should get oh, him on. Oh, great. We you are invited. Michael, Michael if you're listening, hit us up. Yes. Don't let the word go to your head until you are an OBS. Then we'll, we'll bring you down a notch. So. Uh, best new production, run through the nominees. We've got Tales of Hoffman from Opera Australia, Nixon in China from uh, Paris National Opera, Wozzeck from ROH, The Greek Passion, which is not one I'm familiar with, from Salzburg, 
Uh, we also have Orfeo from Santa Fe Opera, which we which Oliver is familiar with, and uh, well, we also have Il Tritico from Scottish Opera, uh, and Il Turco Natalia from Teatro Real. But the winner is the Bayerische Staatsoper production of Prokofiev's War and Peace, directed by Chernikov. Uh, and uh, honestly, I have not seen this production, but if you look on paper and see the forces and level of resources required to put on Prokofiev's War and Peace, you should automatically get a, an award just for pulling it off. So, and so you know, topical. So topical. Yeah, yeah. Spe- I, I will say like the timing of the production, you know, so soon after um, uh, uh, the invasion of Ukraine was, uh, I don't know if that was planned beforehand or not, but certainly hit a, a, a hit the right note, I think, at least for the committee who, who uh, chose the winners here. I have no objections. I just want to say that there were eight productions uh, that were nominated. Only one was from the U.S., which is fine. Uh, but I'm assuming that if you are on the judging panel, you had to have seen all eight. And uh, if they have seen all eight, good on them for they're very seeing, well traveled. Yeah, for seeing <laughs> yes. that much opera, they're clearly doing a lot harder work than uh, the Grammy nominating committees are in uh, <laughs> sussing out what deserves to be nominated. So, moving on, uh, best designer went to Lizzie Klachen. Uh We are not that familiar with her work, but we know that she participated in the production of. She was the uh, set designer of the new Lucia from the Met. Yes. On the yes. turntable. Yes. Uh, Best Director nominees were uh, Keith Warner, Vasily Bar- Barkatov, or Barkatov, Tatiana Gurbaka, Andreas Homoki, uh, Lotte de Beer, and the eventual winner, Barry Kosky. Uh, we don't have George here for his input, but that's too bad. He's not here, so you can tell <laughs> well, us. Well, I, th- I think that Barry Kosky is one of those directors who – the past five, 10, well, 15 years, he, he, he's been everywhere. You know, he, he is one of the, I think, few, uh, few directors who you can see with regularity in both the US and Europe. Um, with and we're not just talking of... about the silent movie magic flute. No, we're not, not which just is still that making one. the rounds everywhere. Yes, um, but like you, you can see his productions just about anywhere. Like you wouldn't have to be very well traveled to be familiar with Barry Kosky. So maybe he was the the easy win- winner for after all that traveling to uh, what well, was it Australia for uh, Tales of Hoffman, uh, followed by War and Peace in Bavaria. You know, I I think he's he's a big name. It makes sense. You know. Uh, not a lot of like real upsets so far as far as this this year goes in the, in the Opies. Um, the Equal Opportunities and Impact Award went to La Monet uh, for their A Bridge Between Two Worlds season, which I think we did talk about a little bit um, uh, a few months ago. Is it I like think between AI and real, or oh, I forget what is there. No, no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, oh gosh, I wish you hadn't put me on the spot because you I can't look. Remember. Well, I read the other nominees. So, <laughs> uh, so Lamane won the Equal Opportunities Impact. Uh, also nominated were uh, the Asian Opera Alliance. I think they're sort of friends of the show. Uh, the National Opera Studio is that British? I'm not sure, but it's national. Uh, Opera for Peace Tapestry, friends of the show, and uh, the Atlanta Opera. Hmm. The Atlanta Opera, we talked about their uh, Equal Opportunity Impact uh, initiative with uh, Morris Robinson. That's the one they did like 24 hours of opera or like 
composing operas on the spot type of thing. I forget what it was, but we heard about it from Morris Robinson. But anyway, did so, you find something out? Uh, I did. A Bridge Between Two Worlds, we did talk about it. it rem- uh, I was reminded uh, uh, once I did the Googling. Uh, it's aimed at people who are vulnerable in society economically, uh, you know, in terms of health. Uh, and uh, they they did things like we organize uh, weekly choral singing groups in prisons uh, and talked about uh, poverty and social vulnerability in opera and opera singers. Um, and uh, there's lots of lo- lots of workshops established in vulnerable communities, especially prisons, uh, which is certainly something that I can get behind. Festivals that were nominated were Bayreuth's Baroque, uh, the Opera Philadelphia O Festival. Uh, what is this? O Festival Rotterdam? Is that different than the Opera Philadelphia Festival? I, I think that's, I think it's just the Rotterdam Festival. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there's festival. another O Festival. <laughs> <laughs> and the Handel Festival in Halle. But the winner was Fest- Festival d'Aix-en-Provence because it's, I imagine, the most beautiful festival to go to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another one that wins very frequently. <laughs> yeah, they have the best wine. Uh, Leadership Award went to Stefan Listner. A vote uh, for the gerontocracy. Yes. Well, you, you'll remember that he was reinstated after he was almost kicked off for being too old. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he was reinstated, reinstated in uh, Naples at Teatro di San Carlo. Um, Nadine's, oh, Marilyn Horn won the Lifetime Achievement Award. No argument there. Yeah. We stand. The Reader's Award went to Nadine Sierra, and the nominees were Piotr Bachawa, Nicholas Brownlee, Freddie DiTomaso, Michael Fabiano, Sally Matthews, Lizette Oropesa, and Sandra Ravinovsky. So pretty stiff, stiff competition. Yeah. That's a, that's a good group. The complete opera recording went to Opera Rara's Il Proscritto, mm, beating out recording. a bunch of random stuff like Cesar Franck's Hulda, uh, Luli's Siche, Mercadante's, I mean, uh, Puccini's Turned Out is not random, and Rimsky Korsakov's. Madonna wasn't <laughs> enough to get it over the top, though. Christmas Eve, yeah. <laughs> So I do really like, uh, oh, and an opera by Dessau called Lanzelot. Uh, but I do really like Opera Rara's mission. And, um, and the Proscriptor was a fascinating opera. I listened to the radio broadcast of it a couple yeah. months ago. It's definitely yeah. worth checking out. Recital disc of the year uh, contenders were Cyril Dubois' So Romantique, Javier Camarena's Signor Gaetano, Jody DeVos's Bijou Perdue, uh, Marina Viotti's Tribute to Pauline Viardot, and Sonia Yoncheva's Courtesan. Uh, but the winner was friend of the show, Lizette Oropesa. You see what you get for being a guest on <laughs> Opera Box Score. We got one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I heartily agree with this win, considering I've listened to that French opera disc like six times in the past week, ever since the granddaughter think of the regiment. Yeah. I think uh, that's the only one I've actually listened to of this group. <laughs> there were a bunch of young singers nominated for the Young Singer Award, two who I was really cheering for were Josh Lavelle and Lawrence Kilsby, but the winner was Andrzej Filonczyk. I think that's how you say his name. So congratulations, Andrzej, future guest of Opera Box Score. Moving on to the Grammys. Man. Not nearly as many categories. Yeah, we're going to just talk <laughs> about... Easier. Uh, well, we'll talk about three categories, but we'll only focus on two. Starting with my gripe about the opera, best opera recording. There were only three nominees. Uh, the uh, I guess recording, quote unquote, made from the live production of Terrence Blanchard's Champion with yep. friend of the show, Ryan Speedo Green, we love. Uh, John Corleano's Lord of Cries, not the Santa Fe Opera production, but the Boston Opera, Mo- Modern Opera Project and Odyssey Opera recording uh, made with friend of the show, Gil Rose and friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo and friend of the show, Catherine Henry. 
Lots yep. of people we stand in that cast. And I saw the original production in Santa Fe two years ago. And David T. Little, another friend of the show, nominated yeah. for Black Lodge, uh, which is not really opera in the sense of like singing on a stage with acoustic in an acoustic environment and being accompanied by an orchestra. Uh, Black Lodge is a film opera with uh, rock technique, essentially uh, heavy metal and rock technique singing. And uh, it's accompanied by a rock band. So really stretching the definition of opera, you take a look at the recordings that were nominated over there at uh, the International Opera Awards, and there's no crossover. Zero. There's no (laughs) Torondot starring Sandra Radvanovsky. Uh, there's no um, Operara recording or Bruzzane recording. Two companies, Operara and Bruzzane, that are doing exquisite work that I think deserves attention. Um, not even uh, the Lisa Davidson recording of um, Fidelio was nominated, which is, I mean, you should give her some award, you know? <laughs> yeah, she needs it. She deserves yeah. awards. She yeah. does. Awards. Give her awards. I, I think. I think part of the problem here is the, the Grammys are not. Uh, they're not legally obligated to be. Um, to only nominate American uh, artists and companies, but there is a definite, shall we say, American bias, and especially for like these, you know. You know, let's face it, minor categories like the the only categories we care about, uh, you know, you tend to have a lot kind of slip through the the cracks. Um, I mean, the the one sort of, you know, commonality between these three is that they're all, you know, American. They're all associated with American companies, uh, American productions. Uh, most they're all of new, the which is great. They're all new pieces, and if it's a new yeah. piece, also the composer wins a Grammy too. So I wonder if that's factoring into their calculus at all. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think what I will say, slight improvement in that you know they're not all you know just audio rips from uh, you know uh, from video. Uh, I mean, e- even Black Lodge, I would I would give a pass to because it's been it's not live audio, you know, and I, I think the Grammys really should be about the audio experience Lord of cries is a pure studio recording, uh, which, you know, is an unusual sight in this, uh, in this category. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily going to help it win because I think the Grammys have very clearly demonstrated that they don't care about that, (laughs) about, about that. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, uh, we'll, we have a, we have a friend of the show in every single nomination. So we'll win either way it goes. Uh, tangentially interested in the best choral performance and the nominees are uh, Donald Nally's The Crossing Ensemble uh, and a lot of friends of our own Matt. Their their ninth nomination in eight years. Uh, And this album is Carols After a Plague. That's the Shara Nova uh, piece. Yeah. 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 Uh, Craig Hella Johnson, uh, a friend of me, not friend of the show, friend (laughs) friend of my other show. Uh, with uh, the Miro Quartet and his uh, ensemble Conspirare, the House of Belonging. Liggity, this is for you, Weston. Yeah, uh, this, this is a eternal. great album. This is great recording. Yeah. Conducted by Esa Pekka Salonen. Uh, Rachmaninoff's All Night Vigil. I wonder how many times All Night Vigil has been nominated for a Best Choral Performance. Uh, but this performance by the Clarion Choir. And Sariajo's Reconnaissance with the Ucinta Ensemble and the Helsinki Chamber Choir. I feel like it's 
Saria, we have to pay tribute to Saria, so she's got to win. I'm putting she, my... Yeah, she might be the one person who can stop Donald Nally's forward slog toward the <laughs> joint crown of Beyonce and George Schulte. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, they're is, the Grammy-winningest that... artists. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, here we go. Nominees for Best Classical Solo Vocal Album. Reggie Mobley and Baptiste Tautignon nice. for their spiritual jazz-ish album, Because... Uh, friend of the show, Karim Suleiman, and guitarist Sean Shibe for their exploration of identity and broken branches. Friend of the show, Laura Strickling with Daniel Schlossberg in her commissioning project, 40 at 40. Uh, friend of the show, Lawrence Brownlee with pianist Kevin J. Miller for Rising, which I just listened to today. Very good. And future friend of the show, Julia Bullock with Christian Rye for Walking in the Dark. These are That's all recordings that I stand. They're all... DEI forward, every one of them is DEI yeah. forward. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. Uh I feel like Laura Strickling is at a disadvantage for being the cis white woman and <laughs> <laughs> the nominees. And that's I mean it's a great thing and it's a sad thing at the same time, you know. But um, Yeah, I the, I mean I always think that the Grammy classical solo uh albums are I, I agree with the nominees much more than anything in the opera category yeah. consistently. I, I don't, I, it's, it's interesting to me that that's such a common theme. Um, I think it's going to go to Julia Bullock, um, but maybe that OBS bump will get one really? of ours. In. I think Larry Brownlee's going to win it. All right. Place yeah. your bets, folks. Where, where, yeah. Who do you think will win, Matt? I mean, Larry Brownlee would be in the, in the vein of Renee Fleming, who took it took this award last year kind of the biggest name in there so i i I think it really depends on how much the voters are gonna dive down and actually listen to the recordings versus just picking the (laughs) name that's the question (laughs) uh who who, uh this is always one of the most exciting times of the uh, the uh you know red carpet you know opera crossover you know it's the one moment where you know uh i feel like i'm in step with the popular music cheering on my favorite recordings, uh, even though there's only three of them in the opera category. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll see who wins. Will the OBS bump pull out? You can only find out here on Opera Box Score or, I guess, the Grammy website. Yeah. If, uh, when is, if you can get the awards, award. uh, it's going to be in 2024, right? It's in February. February, yeah. 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 So make sure you don't look at the Grammy website and you only listen to our podcast. Coming up next, we have a field report from Ashley Hardgrave, plus Matt Cummings will give us a nice chunky rundown on Yenufa (laughs) at uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, by the way. On Spotify, click follow. On Apple Podcasts, hit that plus sign. Pass or fail, here's Monday Evening Quarterback. Hey there, OBS folks. Uh, This is Ashley, and I am coming to you live from the intermission at the Kennedy Center of Washington National Opera's closing night of Grounded. Uh, My Act 1 thoughts are, Weston, are you ready? Are you ready with the button? Holy Holy buckets. Holy cow, holy everything. This is a really... It is a very now opera. It is a very extraordinary opera. Um, There are 300 LED tile panels that are hovering on the top half of the stage as the ceiling and the walls and the floor uh, to project a number of images, largely F-16 
fighter jets. Uh, there's there's a there's a lot going on technologically speaking, um, but Tesori's score is really stunning. It's it's contemporary, but it's tonal. Uh, the um, the scenes that take place in Wyoming, where uh, where Eric, the male lead's home is, are very, you know, frontier, ranch, beautiful. But really, this is about the singing, and the singing is extraordinary. Um, Emily D'Angelo as Jess, this is, this is her show. This is her show. She has an incredible instrument. She was Prince Charming in The Met Cinderella. She is absolutely extraordinary. I really hope she goes with this to the Met when it goes there next season. Um, not to be missed is Eric, uh, who is played by Joseph Dennis. He's, he's a fantastic tenor. He soars over the orchestra at just the right balance, even when the orchestration is super thick. Uh, so he's really, really excellent. And you know, my, one of my, my vocal besties, I love him so much, Morris Robinson as a commander. Can he sing everything all the time? I just want him to sing everything. Um, so yeah, these are my sort of initial overwhelmed thoughts of, of act one. I will be sure to provide more of a, an assessment at the end of act two when I've seen the whole piece as a whole, but what I've seen so far, it's, uh, it's, it's really special. It's really something. It is, is very now in terms of, of opera, but it definitely has sort of the grand, the grand things that you want to see out of, out of this type of storytelling. It's, it's really something. It's really special. Sorry. One other thing I forgot to mention about this. I'm just so overwhelmed. Um, one of the things that makes this really special is that... You know, we often hear stories of war. We often hear stories of soldiers. We don't often hear the stories of female soldiers and the unique challenges that come with having the physiology of an able-to-bear-children female soldier. Uh, And that storyline is is very important to this piece, and it's something that is... um, It's just not told, especially not in this art form. So I'm... I'm really appreciating and very moved by that. At any rate, okay, here we go. On to Act 2. Okay, OBS friends, I am home after the close of Act 2 and some really interesting discussions. Um, I need to make a mild correction to myself. Um, I said in one of my earlier clips uh, that I really hoped that Emily would go with this production to the Met. Um, I did not know. Here's the deal. A lot of people, when they go to operas, they like to know everything about it before they walk in the door. They read synopsis, they read history, they read production notes, etc. When it comes to a new piece like this, I don't do any of that. I like to go in ice cold and just have it happen to me and at me. And then after I've gotten to see the piece as is with absolutely no shading, then I go in and fill in those pieces. So had I done it before, I would know that Jean Tesori had written this piece for Emily in a Metco production. So guess what? She's going with it to the Met. So hooray. Mild correction for myself, but now you see why. Okay, here are the thoughts. This is an incredibly powerful piece. It's a heavy piece, but it's powerful. You know, stories of war, they're like that. Um, this story, <laughs> excuse me, in particular, it's it tells a story of war, of modern war, um, but it does it without gratuity. And it would be really easy for this to get gratuitous. And I really appreciate the director and the librettist and the composer 
bringing it together and keeping it tight. Um, this story is about what happens to soldiers when they go to war. Uh, it is about that dissociation and that dissection that can happen sometimes for soldiers between their soldier selves and their human selves. It's kind of the way they keep it together. Um, you know, it's, it's amped up even more so because it's from a female perspective. And again, that's something I mentioned earlier. We don't get to see that very much. You know, her soldier self, her, her sense of being as a soldier gets uprooted not once, but twice. You know, she's a fighter pilot and she gets uprooted once for pregnancy because she can't fly when she becomes pregnant. And she gets uprooted again when she returns to her fighter pilot self, only to find out that the culture and the technology of war has changed from flying actual planes flying drones um so that's just a really interesting journey to watch the central character of chess go through morris robinson i don't need to say anything you know you know how good he is but he's really excellent as the commander he has you know he went to a military school and so he gets the the idea of what it means to be the military guy in charge and it came through fred ballantyne as the trainer was excellent Kyle miller as the censor ah yes um i mentioned that dissociation earlier there's a character a soprano character that is a counterpart to the central mezzo character. And it's the dissociation of that soldier self. Uh, and this, the title of the character is also Jess. Uh, and that's played by Kayford's young artist, Teresa Parada. And that's a, it's a heck of a voice. Uh, the gentleman in the kill chain, um, which will make sense once you know more about the story, also very excellent, even though a lot of their stuff was under affectation because they were supposed to sound like they were on radios, for example. But my goodness, those were... Excellent, excellent singers. And of course, all of the gentlemen of the chorus, bravi, 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 beautiful singing. Um, also, hooray to Daniela Candelari of Opera of St. Louis. She's making her WNO debut with this show. So hooray. We love that. Another big hooray, the insane creative team and their projection designers for this. It, they are they are their own character. They deserve their own Emmy, Grammy, Tony, Oscar, whatever we want to give them. Just give them, give them something because they need a World Opera Award, something. The, those projection designs were absolutely stunning. Also a big shout out to the, uh, the military accuracy within the storytelling. There were these little visual cues, uh, the, the placement of of actors uh, behind the central characters so that people were always being watched, always being surveilled because in the military, that's a thing. Like nobody's doing stuff on their own. There are always a hundred sets of eyes on you. And just some of the things they did with the, with the military plot points were, were incredibly accurate. And, and I very much appreciated it. Um, these aren't necessarily critiques, but some interesting what ifs, you know, as tight as the storytelling was and as cool as so much of this music is, I do feel like there might be some spots at the end of Act One that could be trimmed just a little bit. Again, I mean, the story's pretty tight. We're looking at, you know, under three hours start to finish with an intermission, but there were just a couple of moments that I felt went on a little bit longer than maybe I would have hoped. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when when this goes to the Met next season. But the librettist and the composer were rumored uh, to be in the house tonight to feed off of our energy so that they can make adjustments and updates for the Met production. They are going to have plenty to work with based on the audible gasps that were coming from my section of the floor, as well as the shifting in the seats. Um, overall, I applaud Francesca Zambello for, I am guessing on purpose, programming this and Romeo and Juliet right next to each other. You know, it's it's this modern piece and classic piece back to back and they're both 
focused on a perpetual cycle of violence. Um, I have to say, to see this piece now with the world where it is, sociopolitically speaking, and on the closing of American Veterans Day weekend, sitting next to actual veterans in the audience, it, um, it gives you lots to feel and it gives you lots to think about. And I am grateful that this piece exists and I am grateful that more people are going to get to see it next season. So, bravi all around. OBS peeps, I am here in the Music Center, specifically the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, here at the intermission of LA Opera's Barber of Seville. And it is a delight. And not just because I have a margarita in my hand during intermission. Um, it's very well sung. I really, really appreciate Rob Ashford's directing. I love that the overall vibe is... I'm assuming this is intentional. They're really leaning into the camp of it all. You know, sometimes if you do Rossini, first of all, so many notes, so fast and so many notes. I forget. My goodness. You guys are all champions. Uh, but when you're doing, you know, sort of a, a period appropriate version, there can be this like inkling to take it too seriously. But Rob Ashford and his team are like leaning into the camp of it, which I really, really appreciate. Huge, huge high fives to Joshua Hopkins, whose Figaro is probably the best one I've ever seen live. It's incredibly impressive. Isabel Leonard, my goodness, this Rosina is, she's stunning. She's absolutely stunning. Also, shout out to uh, Patrick Carfizzi, who is singing Bartolo. Bless you, hun, for getting through that aria. It was, it was excellent. Again, well sung, well sung, everybody. Shout out to Luca Pizzaroni, friend of the show, for an excellent and hilarious and over-the-top uh, Dr. or sorry, Don Basilio. Sorry, it's kind of dark as I'm looking at my program here, but overall act one, excellent. Total treat, total delight. Cannot wait for act two. How will it all end? I mean, we know, but still, I'm just, I'm just excited for the singing. Uh, it's, it's a really beautiful production and, uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm getting to enjoy it. Okay. OBS fam. I am now back from the LA opera production of Barber. Um, what a treat. What a treat. Um, I know I mentioned a little bit about the camp at intermission, but I want to go on record saying, like, yes, there's camp. And yes, it's funny. But the the direction and the acting, or maybe it was the director coaching the singers to act, but there was this really sweet humanity kind of across the cast, even with the camp, you know, especially in the lovers, but even in the comedian, like the true comedic roles, there were, there were these really sweet moments of humanity. So I don't want the, the camp to overshadow the really lovely acting choices that were made. Um, here's the thing. 
I have seen Barber plenty. Um, I kind of never have to see it again, honestly. You know, I was interested in seeing this production because I didn't get to catch it at Lyric uh, in my backyard. So here's the thing. I am used to seeing, like, the same tricks, the same jokes, the same gags in a Barber because, you know, kind of writes itself at that point. But the nice thing about this one was it was a little... Even though it was traditional in in terms of like the setting and the and the civilian costumes and decor, there was something about it that was fresh, um, refreshing. Even it made me like Rossini again for like three hours. Um, again, you know my bag is usually a, a different type of piece, but this was really really fun. Um, so a couple of quick uh, hoorays and highs and what ifs. Um, hoorays, of course, to the singing. My goodness, Isabel. Edgardo Rocha, Josh Hopkins, who I've mentioned, our buddy Luca Pizzaroni, who was making his Ellie Opera debut. Um, also, do not sleep on this young lady, Kathleen O'Meara, who played Berta. You know, she kind of gets that one moment in the show, and man, she made a meal out of it. She's um, she's in the Young Artist Program there. We're going to see a lot more from her, so remember that name. Also, a hello and hooray and shout out to chorus director Jeremy Frank, because the men's choruses all sounded glorious. Uh, they got some really cute moments, and so I really appreciated that. Thank you, Jeremy. A couple of hellos. Hello to the cast of Lyric Opera's production, uh, because they were the cover stars of the LA Opera program. I was like, oh, I know some of those folks. Yep, it's because it was a shot of the uh, Chicago production. Uh, and again, not really a criticism, but a, but a what if. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it was like the depth of the staging or like the force of the orchestra, but there were some times in little pockets of Act One where I had a little bit of trouble hearing uh, Rocha as, as the count. You know, now that I think about it, I was seated on the floor. So like, I wonder if he's got one of those lyric tatters that just like shoots up super high and it goes like out the top of his head instead of forward. Um, so perhaps the balcony may have not had the same issue that I had. Still, it was absolutely beautiful. It was a beautiful presentation. Listen, if if they can assemble a team that makes Barber feel this fresh, I'm in. I'm in. Congratulations to the cast and creative. It was a lovely production. And if they can do that with Barber, imagine what they're going to do with a new piece. Um, so the next thing that they have coming up is The Last Dream of Frida and Diego, um, and it's starting soon, possibly this weekend. And what I'm hearing on the ground is that it is something super, super special and not to be missed. I'm actually really sad I'm not going to be back in LA for this, because you've got Lena Gonzalez-Granados on the podium, you've got Daniela Mack and Alfreda Daza as Frida and Diego. LA, you should catch this one. And while you're there, congratulate them on an excellent run of Barbersville. Just a bit of Joshua Hopkins singing Figaro from a 2019 production in Rouen. Thank you, Ashley. And now let's turn to uh, Matt Cummings with, I'm looking at the doc here, Matt, and you have written maybe a, a thesis, <laughs> it's a, my term a, a dissertation <laughs> on, uh, on Yenufa at the Lyric. So um, I think let's just get right into it. What's the deal? Why, why are you so wordy? Why are you so inspired to speak? 
So I was fortunate enough to be in the audience of opening afternoon of Yenufa, the prima, as they say, of Lyric Opera's production of Klaus Gutz. New to Chicago production of Yenufa, uh, starring, uh, the, the women of the moment, Lisa Davidson and Nina Stemme. Uh, the, that production was, it originally premiered in 2021, but that was a mm. pandemic postponement. It was supposed to go live in March of 2020 and, you know, for some reason didn't get to go forward. <laughs> and I honestly thought that this was one of the most moving and powerful opera performances that i've ever attended both because of the production oh, and the performances um the the goot production it's it's really symbolic and and like it's very stark and from the very from the onset it creates this like super oppressive mood and i think that when you re- if like if you were to take it if you're going to go to this production i recommend that you take a look at the conductor and director's notes before watching it because they really were illuminated to uh, the illuminating to me um, where he talks about wanting to create a production that isn't glued to its locale, um, in this Moravian village in the, you know, late 19th century. And I think it really succeeds in, in making this a more universal piece. Mm-hmm. Um, to do a brief synopsis of Yenufa, you like really need to get your family trees out because the, <laughs> the relationships between the characters are rather confusing but Yenufa is this is is a peasant girl and she's living in a town she is engaged to the older brother Steva who is supposed to be inheriting the mill she's already pregnant with his child and is really relieved when he's not uh, conscripted to go to war but his bitter half brother who is not going to be able to inherit any profits from the mill you know in a fit of pique slashes Yenufa's cheek and disfigures her and he doesn't want Steva doesn't want anything to do with her anymore because she's not beautiful and so Yenufa's stepmother who is known as the Kostelnichka which means like church wardeness um (laughs) easy one-to-one translation there (laughs) she hides her in her house for months and tells everyone that she went to Vienna so that she can give birth to this baby in secret hoping that they're going to be able to get the marriage to work but Steva is a total deadbeat won't marry her is engaged to the mayor's daughter and wants to do that instead. And uh, Laka, the younger brother, won't marry her because, like, if the baby's around. So Kostelnichka decides that she has to kill the baby in order for their family to have any kind of future. And she drowns it under the ice and doesn't tell Yenufa that she kills him, him, the baby, uh, just that he died while she was in a feverish dream. So a couple months later, during the wedding of Yenufa to Laka, the baby is found. And the whole town starts getting ready to, you know, inflict this punishment on Yenufa. And the Kostelnichka says, don't do it. It was me. I'm guilty. And Yenufa forgives her. And she and Laka end up in, like, a really loving relationship after all. And so the symbolism of this production, I think, really is underpinned by the specificity of Janacek's score. Uh, and Janacek, is, is, like, he's a very, he's really well known for, if he's known for, if he's well known for one thing, it's that he would, like, go out into the countryside and, like, record people talking in um, Moravia, Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic and Slovakia, and try to fit that on onto his music as closely as possible. Yeah. So his music has this, like, really, really specific speech-like pattern to it, and it's very much grounded in this authenticity and specificity so you're like when you contrast that with this production that's trying to be like 
this is very universal. All families have these problems. All mm. people have these kinds of have some kind of tension between the expectations of society and what it is that they really want. I walked away with the sense that like this story is universal and this is just one version of it. Mm. Um, and, and that like, it, there's that spe- like an intentionally black blank backdrop that makes a lot of use of projections and uh but like proje- but usually like literal projections like shadows of the people on stage are used to really good effect not just like a projection you know someone put a projection camera there and right. like all the stars are swirling around that I rarely thinks work that I really think works as well as like directors really wanted to do um but, like, from the very beginning, the curtain is raised through this, like, kind of slatted scrim. And so you kind of get the feeling of it, like, going step by step and instead of kind of, like, a smooth rise. Because since there are, like, all those black slats in the middle of it. And it was, like, really effective at punctuating this kind of vibe of the opera. That it's, like, very oppressive. It's very conservative. People are always watching you. Um, mm. and, and like both in real life and also like in the nightmares of the characters. Um, and in act one, you're just kind of like, this is very uneasy. Everyone's being really weird. Like what is happening? Um, and then you get to act two and it, I honestly think that this is one of the best acts of opera period. Like it's so gut wrenching. Mm. It's this like long, it's this series of confrontations between all of the characters and, um, Goot's production turns from this, like, very atmospheric town into, like, a really, really specific searing family drama. And, like, a lot of the symbols that were laid out in the first act, like, start making a lot more sense. Like, the women in the mill are working on these things in Act 1, and you're like, what are those things that are hanging all over the stage? And then in Act 2, you see, like, that it's baby cradles. Because because mm. that's the baby cradle that's in Yenofa's room. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of. Um, the 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 Kostelnichka's house in in Act Two is like this literal cage, and it has two rooms. There's a bare mattress lying on the floor for Yenofa's room, and like a small desk and a lamp. And the stage is strewn with like twenty five different mattresses. And I think that it, like, he's kind of trying to make them represent different things throughout the act. So at first they're like this oppressive obsession that the characters have because they've been trapped in, in the home with nowhere to go. And then when Kostanichka's like talking about how her worst nightmare is everyone in town figuring out and shaming her. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the mattresses get this really like dirty feeling because they're like, that's the sin. That's the sex. That's happening. And then um, during Yenufa's prayer, she, you know, like has this kind of reverie where she dreams of escape and leaves the cage for a little bit and lies down on a mattress. And like, then it's just like longing for rest and for freedom. And like, um, the most really effective moment of the cage part, I think, is like when Laka like eventually relents to marrying Yenufa, he comes over and he pulls one of the pieces of the cage out you know, like literally offering her her freedom with his proposal. Um, and he's it, like, it looks like they were just fences, but spoiler alert coming up, like he lays it down on its end and you see that actually the cage is made out of bed frames. It's mm. all of the, and he picks one of the mattresses up on the ground. And it was like a really powerful moment to me. It made, like, it made it very clear that, you know, this is a loveless cope rather than like an actual marriage at this point. You know, it's societal soothing and nothing more. 
Yeah. Man, sounds like a pretty good production, but uh, uh Yeah, and then Act <laughs> 3 like just takes it over from there. I'll leave some surprises to the to the okay, audience. Okay, good. But, what, uh, what's your what's your star rating out of 5? It, it is it's fully five stars like lisa wow. Davidson, much has been written much has been said some on this podcast i've did a lot of listening to her recordings you it does not prepare you for what the voice is like to experience live like during her final aria duet i like you feel the resonance in your body she can sing so loudly she can sing so quietly it's beautiful at both extremes um this is a pretty rangy part there's like a lot of b flats and b's i i was you know trying to follow along with the score today while i was listening and i didn't see any c's but that doesn't mean that they're not there like it's pretty <laughs> high um and she is just like head and shoulders literally over most people on the stage and also she's vocally, six feet tall so yeah like when when she's off stage singing she is still louder than some of the people who are on stage <laughs> <laughs> um Jeez. but it is it never sounds forced it always like has this really beautiful shimmering core uh and, and like the the quality does not come across over recordings in in any way that does her justice even though those recordings are like still pretty good Nina as somebody, Stem, oh, before, before you go, as somebody who has to often edit those recordings and prepare them for radio, um, the recording engineers don't seem to know what to do with her voice because she does have yeah. these extremes of loud and soft, and you get to the loud parts, and it almost, you know, um, clips like it's so loud that it's like distorted, like in, and like most recordings are compressed, and you expect them to do some engineering, but they are like, I don't know, it's just it's just going to be a bad couple of seconds on this yeah. one. You know? <laughs> Nina Stemma also, like, is not here to, like, be forgotten as the Coastal Nichka. Right. She, anytime she comes on stage, like, she is in command of it. I think she is, like, a titanic force. And even if some of the top notes, like, maybe are a little bit more effortful for her now than they used to be, I think it's worth the effort. Um, mm. She, like, is totally singing with abandon, and her lower voice is sounds pretty fantastic. But... She is absolutely throwing herself into this very thrilling drama of like inhabiting the the role of a religious zealot and also making her very human. The mm. the like the the family relationships are this in this play that was turned into an opera, they feel really real. And I think the performances like breathe a lot of life into them. Well, uh, I believe if you're listening to this episode, when it drops, you'll still have at least a week or two uh, if you're in the Chicago area. Yeah, check the 26th. Out yeah. The 26th. Yes. Thank you. Uh, to check out uh, Janacek's uh, Yanufa, Yanufa, excuse me, at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I think it's a, I think it's an accented first syllable and a long unaccented second second syllable. So it's Yanufa. Yanufa. Okay. There, there we go. You learn something new every day here. And is it Laka or Latsa? I am not sure. It might I think be it's Latsa. <laughs> yeah. Let us know if if you know the correct pronunciation of these Czech words, or if you have been similarly inspired to write a dissertation about a performance you saw by sending us a voice memo, or you can email us your hot take at mailbag at operaboxscore.com. You can also record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. Let's do a free throw. Uh. Friends of the show, Boston Early Music Festival, present their Thanksgiving weekend chamber opera um, November 25th and 26th in Boston. This year, it's John Frederick Lampa's The Dragon 
of Wantley. The cast includes uh, Douglas Williams, friend of the show, John Taylor Ward, friend of the show, uh, soprano Teresa Wakem, soprano Hannah DePriest, and friend of the show, Aaron Sheehan. Uh, since Aaron Sheehan has really sung in probably more productions at Boston Early Music Festival than anybody I know, I thought we should hear from him about what it's like to be in one of those. And uh, a little bit of warning about this interview. It's not very long, but you'll notice that I don't talk much because originally I had planned to use this as um, filler for a radio broadcast of uh, Circe, the opera that they produced this summer. Uh, but that broadcast never happened. So I had this extra content from Aaron Sheehan in which I don't really talk. So good for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> What is it like to uh, work on an opera at with Boston and the Music Festival? What is the process like? And how does that maybe differ from other uh, opera performances you've done? To be honest, I actually we actually spend more time here than in some opera companies in the United States. Um, but we had a good four and a half weeks of staging rehearsal. And lots of times that involves re learning the music as well. But because we had already recorded this disc, all of us came in knowing the music very well. And so we had a full four and a half weeks of staging, which gave us a lot of time to get into in-depth discussions about our characters, about what we were saying. And I think overall that's leading to a very high product um, in the quality, end, high quality product in the end, because... I think all of us know exactly what we're saying, even though most of us don't speak French. <laughs> One thing that's amazing about Boston Early Music Festival is that we have our continual team with us from the very beginning. Um, I don't think, once you get out of the Baroque world, I don't think a lot of people understand this aspect of Baroque, like opera. Um, the continual team is playing from the very beginning to the very end of the whole opera. They don't take a break. They play in the arias, they play in all the rest of you. And it is important, it is paramount that they know exactly what we are saying just as much as we know what we're saying. They know when we're going to breathe, they know where we might take time, and the only reason that happens is because they've been playing for us for the last four and a half weeks, which means that your director is going to be there for the whole time, which is not always the case in an opera staging as well. Can you talk about um, getting into the mood of French Baroque uh, with uh, the access to the choreography or access to seeing the choreography and the costuming, et cetera, that type of stuff, like the stage craft, you know. One way that helps us get into this world of French Baroque um, opera is that a lot of it is based on dance. And we are lucky enough to have, I believe, 10 dancers in this cast. And so you get to see how they move on stage, which also influences how the singers move on stage. Um, and then the second we put on our costumes, we all just, you, you just stand differently. It's the second you put on a heel, you walk differently. And then you put on a, you put on tights, you put on a wig, you put on a very fitted outfit. That's kind of a dress and you just, you also stand. It makes your arms move a very certain way. You can't, 
you can't just stand like you do in downtown Chicago <laughs> when you're putting on a French Baroque outfit. <laughs> One thing that's special about a French Baroque opera is that it's not just the music that can show you how the music is going to be performed. You have the set, which is ornate. You have the staging, which is usually symmetrical. And you're moving in a very controlled and delicate way. And then you have the costumes, which are lacy and beautiful, and they're ornate. And that leads you to the singing, which is mirrored in all of that. And then it gives you this this whole, like, I shouldn't say the word whole. No, no, it's fine. You were going, it was going so <laughs> I want to say Gesamtkunstwerk, but I can't. Um, it creates a whole. Yeah. It creates. <laughs> so then with all of that, it creates a whole that gives you a very immersive experience. heard at the top of that uh, Aaron Sheehan singing in the 2008 production of Charpentier's Acteon. And to close, Aaron Sheehan joined by Teresa Wakeham in the love duet from Aces and Galatea. Once again, Boston Early Music Festival, Dragon of Wantley, November 25th and 26th in Boston. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Students at the Cleveland Institute of Music have submitted a petition calling for the resignation of board chair Susan Rothman and CEO Paul Hogel. The petition cites lack of transparency and honesty with the student body, their mishandling of 2023 layoffs, and the administration's reaction to a peaceful protest of Carlos Kalmar being placed on administrative leave. Sirius XM will remove the Met Opera station from its satellite feed, meaning subscribers must access the 24-7 broadcast from the internet app. Two opera broadcasts will now be featured on the Symphony Hall channel per week. A petition has already begun circulating to restore the station to the airwaves, which I'm sure will make a huge difference. In more Met news, next year they will present a concert celebrating the 75th birthday of Stephen Schwartz, for some reason. <laughs> the concert will include a veritable who's who of Broadway and opera, including Shoshana Bean, Angel Blue, Christian Chenoweth, friend of the show Anthony Roth Costanzo, Sutton Foster, Nick Jonas... Alex Newell, <laughs> Leslie Odom Jr., Oh Holy Night viral sensation David Phelps, Ben Platt, Paulo Schott, and Trisha Yearwood. Um, that sure is a list of people who all make sense together. A survey by Norwich Theatre, which often hosted touring opera companies, found a strong demand for the return of opera in the wake of Arts Council England's defunding of Glyndebourne and Welsh National Opera. Quote, Our research shows that audiences crave opera and that they want to see it nearby, said Norwich CEO Stephen Crocker. We are calling on Arts Council England to reconsider and recognize the impact cuts to organizations like Glyndebourne have on access in the regions. 
With the conclusion of the SAG-AFTRA strike, Bradley Cooper can safely resume his publicity campaign for Maestro, but Parisian audiences are not so lucky. Opéra de Paris was forced to axe a performance of Turandote on the heels of an earlier cancellation of Centrion, both due to the strikes within the cultural sector. I see what you did there, Matt. In trade news, Sarah Connolly has joined the faculty of her alma mater, the Royal College of Music, where she has held a fellowship since 2008. Paolo Gavazzeni has been named the artistic director of Italy's Marcerata Opera Festival. In local trade news, Catherine O'Shaughnessy has taken over as interim executive director of Chicago Fringe Opera, where she previously served as creative director. Extra stage right Harry Akina, stage director and former artistic director of Hawaii Opera Theater, has died at age 68. Akina was the first native Hawaiian in that role and led the company for over 20 years and more than 100 performances. Said Hawaii Opera Theater, As we honor his memory, we pledge to carry forward his spirit, ensuring that opera and the beautiful community that he helped to build around it continue to flourish in Hawaii. English bass baritone Keel Watson died suddenly at the age of 59. Watson made his Royal Opera debut in 2000 and sang frequently across the U.S. as well as internationally. He was also featured in Kenneth Branagh's film adaptation of The Magic Flute and an animated version of The Cunning Little Vixen. Welsh tenor Ryland Davies has died at age 80. He made his Glyndebourne debut back in 1964 and won the house's John Christie Award the following year. Davies went on to perform with such companies as the Royal Opera House, Paris Opera, San Fran, and The Met, and is featured on a number of major opera recordings. And on this day, November 13th, in 1770, André Gautry had a premiere, L'Amitié à la Épreuve, in Fontainebleau. Sixteen years later, another Gretry premiere, Le Comte d'Albert, also in Fontainebleau. 1843 saw the first performance of Donizetti's Dom Sebastian in Paris. In 1854, American composer and conductor George Whitefield Chadwick was born in Massachusetts. The first performance of Jacques Offenbach's Les Deux Pêcheurs took place in Paris in 1857. German soprano Erika Wedekind was born in Hanover in 1868. She was the sister of the playwright Frank Frank. Vedekind, who wrote the plays Lulu is based on, one for Weston. In 1912, it was the first performance of Ricardo Zandonai's Melanis in Milan. 1943 saw the conducting debut of Leonard Bernstein replacing Bruno Walter at the New York Philharmonic. In 1951, bass baritone George London made his Met debut as Amonazro in Aida. And on this day, November 13th in 1981, Hawaii's classical music station, KHPR-FM, began broadcasting with Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde as the first selection to air. And that is your two-minute drill.
you just heard a little bit of what George London's debut might have sounded like. Uh, that was an excerpt from the Act 3 Aida Amanazro duet with Birgit Nilsson and Leopold Stokowski conducting, we think, the Philadelphia Orchestra. YouTube, you can never <laughs> tell what you're getting there. <laughs> you just kind of have to listen for the acoustics of the hall. Does it sound like Philadelphia? Yeah. Before um, we leave on this day, Wes, and any words about uh, Frank Vedekind? You are Stan? Uh, yeah, I love Frank Vedekind. Uh, he also wrote um, Spring uh, Awakening, Spring Awakening uh, famously. That Leah Michelle's career is thanks to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of She should of play Lulu. Operatic potential. <laughs> Well, I mean, she could maybe at the Stephen Schwartz gala. Leah Michelle will debut the murder scene from Lulu. Yeah, this is the Stephen Schwartz gala. I mean, there's so little news here, but we had to mention it because this is really, truly kind of bizarre, and I think reflective, baffling. I, I mean. I, I'm, I mean, I get there's a little bit of like, you know, crossover with Stephen Schwartz into but, like. But he... like not Stephen Schwartz specifically. Like if you're going to talk about opera musical theater class crossover, the two like branches where that would normally go would be golden age stuff where there had to right. be a lot more similarity in technique because the microphones weren't in use quite so much. And also a lot of those compo- like, you know, Jerome Kern worked with Oscar Hammerstein on the lyrics to Shobu. Like, there is actual right, crossover yes, yes, in the early absolutely. days. And then also Sondheim, because it's so dramatically potent, and, you and like, the line often gets blurred with those pieces like A Little Night Music, which is kind of fashioned after an operetta, or yeah. Sweeney Todd, that gets done by opera companies all the time and is through-composed, and, like, it requires a lot of, you know, classical singing technique to make it work. But Stephen Schwartz is, like, belt city. It just yeah. doesn't make <laughs> yeah. sense. I, I get the sense that this is probably like a you know a fundraising thing. I think they were watching you know? all of those uh, all of the engagement on the Wicked twentieth anniversary content, and they were like, "How can we get on board with <laughs> Let's that?" Let's get it. I, I mean, I yeah, it's it's strange. I think that Peter Gelb really has this kind of uh, a- obsession with wanting to make the Met. Uh, Broad, a part of Broadway. Uh, I don't think he realistically thinks he can do it, but he wants to. You know, every time I, I, I and this feels like an idea he had, uh, or maybe Stephen Schwartz is just a big fan of the opera. I, I don't know how much money they can make. You know, considering some of these names are going to be pretty expensive. Got well, Nick Jonas, does Leslie uh, Od- Odom Jr. Does know? Sirius have a Broadway station? I don't know. I don't have. Sirius. They, they do. do. They yeah. do. They sure okay. do. And that yeah. one is not canceled. Yeah, okay. th- this is a strange little story. I, I, He's trying I, to get Angel Blue onto Sirius. <laughs> <laughs> Sirius XM um, is uh, is a strange service uh, right there in between, you know, uh, traditional radio and the new media. Um, and uh, the Met Opera Station was certainly a is certainly a bastion of of uh of classical music for a lot of people so taking it off of its normal feed feels like you know not great i don't know uh, uh, this this petition that is circulating seems to imply that sirius unilaterally removed the met and i'm not sure if that's the case i have i wasn't able to find anything uh, saying otherwise, but I would think that the Met probably would also yeah, have a it say. Might, it might have something to do with just like an expiration of their contract. Yeah. Also, that petition, as of the time of this recording, has and, 250 signatures. A... So, yeah. <laughs> not the greatest. So sign now. Sign now. We'll, we'll get that. We'll get that going. And also, like, it, I'm sure the Met is like, well, we need 
um, to save some money considering the budget shortfalls of the past couple of years. So I, I do think it's a shame that it's being removed. Uh, that being said, they're clear, they're still having the 24 seven broadcast, which means that they still have people being paid to put that together. So I'm not sure how much money is being saved here overall. Um, but, uh, I do think I'm gonna, gonna miss it because the, I think Sirius XM had a lot of potential to really sort of cross that boundary. Um, and I, I think in a lot of ways it's, that potential has been, you know, watered down since it was the, the hot new thing, you know, what, 15 years ago now. Well, now it's Apple Music is the hot new thing, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now that Apple Music is taking over. <laughs> Soon they're going to be on Sirius XM radio. Speaking of <laughs> petitions, uh. We don't have Ashley here for her righteous indignation uh, over what's happening at Cleveland Institute. Um, but I, you know, I'm as the oldest person on the panel, on the old, as the oldest person on many panels, um, <laughs> I, I am between two generations. Like I'm not a boomer and I'm not a millennial. And I understand um, that I may be not sensitive enough about things, but I was, I grew up to not be sensitive about things because yeah. the world sucks, you know? And I don't know. I just feel like, you know, everybody's still wound up about the whole Carlos Calmar thing. And yeah, there are two things happening here. The Carlos Calmar might have behaved very badly. I don't know. He hasn't been tried in court yet. There's no, uh, you know, there's no verdict on what his behavior actually was. But um, we we get the sense that there might have been some inappropriate stuff. And yeah, and the student. I feel like this comes back to that. The student protest asking for the board chair and the president and CEO to resign. It does seem like they have a lot of complaints about how like a pretty big layoff round of layoffs was conducted over the yeah, summer, exactly. including a, an anecdote about, you know, like the administrator of the summer piano Academy being fired while she was supposed to be responsible for the children at the Academy, yeah. which is not great. If true. Yeah. There, th- this is something that's happening a lot in, in, uh, not just in, in music, but in like, in, in terms of like higher education, there's a lot of colleges right now that are consolidating, um, a lot of classes, including here in Chicago. I don't want to name too many names here. Um, but, uh, there are, there are a lot of layoffs, a lot of, um, uh, there's actually some strikes going on even, uh, because, you know, a lot of part-time professors who, of course, have greatly been disproportionately gotten larger and larger, you know, um, are being, you know, not given enough classes to get enough pay f- to do anything. Uh, and I, I think that this is part of that as well, as well as the general, you know, like Oliver said, zeitgeist of, you know, younger people standing up and and demanding, you know, a say in institutions that have a great deal of control over their lives that have been very resistant to change. So we'll, we'll see if this petition goes anywhere. Uh, probably probably won't be half as effective as the Sirius XM, uh, <laughs> but uh, we can hope. Um, speaking of things that require petitions, Arts Council England, you know, we know they're terrible. We're just a few open letters away from solving this. Thing. We can do this. We can do this together, Matt. You and me. Let's write an open letter and let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That's how we end the show here on the show. Let's start with Oliver Camacho. Uh, over the week, we had a really great story from, of all places, PBS News. Uh, it was a report on the state of our industry 
uh, from the perspective of friend of the show, Opera Philadelphia, uh, including um, interviews with friend of the show, Sarah Williams, and uh, the outgoing general director, David Devan. What I liked about this piece, which you can find on our website, just go to operaboxscore.com and click on the webpage for today's episode, and you'll see the whole video, is that it's actually serious reporting. There was no, you know, uh, soprano in a Viking helmet, no tenor with a handkerchief, no cliches. And it was like actual serious journalism. And I encourage all of you to watch it. Matt Cummings. If you are one of our Chicago listeners, and if you're listening to the show in real time, I recommend uh, that you join me at Letters to Jackie this Sunday, November 19th, in Ch- uh, at the Epiphany Art Center. It's at 6 p.m. It features tenor Ryan Townsend Strand and pianist Karina Kontorovich, and uh, it's a program of all new art songs from 15 different composers set to the text of letters that were written to um, Jackie Kennedy in the wake mm. of JFK's assassination. So a very cool project that I hope you'll check out. You can find more information at letters to Jackie.com. I have a bad call for myself. Uh, it's, it's so important w- when you're an opera person to remember that not everyone is an opera person and they are not in the same stage of your opera journey. So my, I took my spouse to see lyric opera of Chicago's daughter of the regiment. And, um, and uh, uh, she enjoyed it, but uh, after the first act, I I asked her what she thought was going to happen in the end, and she is like, "Well, they're all gonna die, right?" And then I realized I'd only exclusively taken her to the kinds of operas that I watched up till now. <laughs> so that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Mmm, yummy money. Give us... <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Give back to the OBS on the support the team page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave with guest Aaron Sheehan, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as long as you're not doing it on satellite radio. We're back next week with our annual Thanksgiving episode. Plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Grammy nominations for The Crossing. Join us.